A Christian just destroyed a pagan altar to Baphomet in the Iowa State Capitol, and the usual suspects are angry about it. Well, of course, that would be the progressive Christians on the internet. In fact, one individual said, a Christian destroying the display of another religious slash irreligious group is about the most anti-Christian act imaginable. Um, Asa? Elijah? You know, the whole Mount Carmel thing where he's mocking the people of a false religion and asking them to cut themselves and act all crazy. Like, okay, I'm pretty sure progressive Christians at this point don't even own a Bible. Suffice to say, and this individual will go on to say the next thing, it's tough to imagine the Apostle Paul tearing down the statues on Mars Hill rather than simply preaching a more compelling message in the public. Well, I don't know. I would say throwing that false idol to the ground, decapitating it, then taking its head and throwing it in the garbage is pretty compelling. But nonetheless, I can't help but want to in some way agree with the fact that perhaps we need a more compelling message. Wait, do we? A more compelling message than that stupid statue of a goat deserves to be in the state capital of Iowa? Let's take just a moment to breathe a little bit and to put your hatred for authentic historic Christianity to the side just so that we can compose ourselves and have a brief conversation. For those who love to talk about Christian nationalism, I don't know why you're not up in arms about this in Iowa unless it is that you use Christian nationalism as a broad catch-all term to try to attack all Christians because you just absolutely are a religious bigot. Now, we also probably need to talk about this. For those uh, of you out there that are the separation of church and state people, um, where is the outcry now that this church of Satan is trying to put their idol in the Iowa State Capitol? Now, I'm not just here to try to cry hypocrite. I'm here to also prove a pretty important point, I think. The First Amendment is wildly misinterpreted by the vast majority of people and I think sometimes intentionally, but for those who just happen to be ignorant about it, the First Amendment simply says in the Establishment Clause that Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion. In other words, I know there's some people who disagree with this, even on the conservative side, but in other words, I think it's very clear. There will be no federal church. There will be no church that is endorsed by Washington. Now, this might also be, historically speaking, a mandate against a federal church because there were state churches. So there were churches that represented each individual state, and they didn't want the government kind of overlording upon those, those individual churches in those states. Now, we're living in a different time. So I think it's a little bit anachronistic to just go back to the place where we say, um, well, you know, we need uh, it's OK to have a state church, but not necessarily like a federal church. Um, I, I think ultimately that the idea here is, is that the government should not be in the business of dictating to religion anything. And that's where the second part of the establishment clause of the First Amendment comes in, where it says, and you shall also not prohibit the free exercise thereof. See, that's the separation of church and state that we don't quite get that when people quote it today, they think it means that you Christians better get out of trying to do anything in the government and trying to make your presence felt in anything that is political. 
Well, excuse me, exactly what gives the secular humanists the right to make their presence and their ideas felt, but not the Christian? See, the ideas that were trying to be codified in our Constitution was an idea of pluralism, not in terms of everything is equal in value, but in terms of the idea that all people should be able to equally hash out their ideas and then the best idea should win. The idea with the most merit. See, I think and that our forefathers understood that Christianity stands on its own two feet as far as that's concerned. So it can go toe to toe with any pagan idol that you put in any state capital and Christianity can emerge as the winner. In other words, it's perfectly legitimate to put the Ten Commandments in a capital state house and not legitimate to put that pagan idol in the state house or satanic idol or whatever you want to say. Stupid idol is what I'll go for. So the whole point of it is this, is that there is no such thing as the separation of church and state in terms of the constitution or some law prohibiting the exercise and the implementation of Christian values and ideas in society, because that would be to totally undermine what the American experiment is all about. Whether you believe that it was a secular society that our founders were after or a Christian society, the one thing that is undeniable is that Christian scripture influenced what they did. And then there might be one second point, and that makes up the sum total of the opening to the show. And that is simply this, that when our founders established the First Amendment, they were definitely not thinking about the right to put satanic altars and idols inside of state houses. Our founders didn't desire for freedom of speech to be a license for ignorant fools to do whatever the hell they want to do or say whatever the hell they want to say. It was always the opportunity to open up the public square for the free discourse of ideas so that the best ideas can win. Baphomet and satanic altars are clearly not that. So that Christian who destroyed that idol and threw his head in the garbage deserves a medal of honor. And we should rejoice with our freedom of speech whenever a Christian actually is willing to have a bit of backbone and do what is not only in keeping with scripture, Old and New Testament, but also what is in keeping with a good conscience. Unfortunately, it's rarer these days than ever before. And we'll talk about that in more today on Indie Thinker. Welcome to the show. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And don't forget to do two more things. Now, you're watching this show, and if you haven't subscribed, what are you waiting on? Because one of the things that will happen if you subscribe is that you'll be notified when new episodes drop. And we just recorded a great new episode of Podcast to the Church. We've had one episode before, and it was fantastic, and we just did another one. That's why I'm here and not in the regular studio. So um, I highly encourage you to, to check that out when it becomes live and to subscribe so that you can be notified when that new episode uh, comes, comes available. Because what we talk about in this episode is a recent conversation between Preston Sprinkle and Jared Moore. Now, if you know who those guys are or are familiar with the conversation, let's just say that there were fireworks in that conversation and a lot to dig into. And me and the guys talk about biblical sexuality. We talk about uh, the tone police and how important mood is to Christians and, and being winsome and, and and we talk about uh, gender and sex and the distinction between those two things and if it's helpful. And we even talk about Christians and whether or not they should use pronouns, which seems to be an obvious answer. But nonetheless, the, just digging into those details is 
deeply beneficial and I think you'll love the show. So you need to check that out. And then secondly, Christmas is right around the corner. We only have two more episodes before the new year. And I highly encourage you to consider end of year giving with IndieThinker before the year runs out. Now you can do that by going to the link on the screen or going to the description of this podcast where you can give a tax deductible donation to IndieThinker. If you believe in the work that we're doing here on the show, I highly encourage you to take a moment to give a tax deductible donation to IndieThinker so that we can continue to create great content in the new year. Some of you have a love-hate relationship with Vivek Ramaswamy, and I have to say, I don't quite get it. Um, some of you think he's just pandering and he's lying and he's kind of snot-nosed and all of that. But every time I hear Vivek say something, it's at least intriguing. It's at least a original thought, which is so hard to come by with politicians these days. Now, if I could put my vote anywhere, it'd still be with Ron DeSantis. But I do have to tell you, I appreciate the kind of communication Vivek is doing while he's on the campaign trail. Again, I don't know if he's running for podcast or running for social media likes, or if he's running for some kind of cabinet office with, with Trump. But, but to be honest with you, I think that about all these candidates right now, because Trump is going to win. Now, um, but, but I, but in the process, I do have a bit of respect for Vivek and here is why check out this town hall meeting on CNN as Vivek is doing things that make the, the moderator incredibly uncomfortable, which makes me incredibly giddy. Check it out. We do have a government. First of all, we have technology that has lied to us systematically over the last several years about the origin of COVID-19, about the Hunter Biden laptop that we were told was false by 51 CIA experts and otherwise, before we now know that it was true. You can go straight down the list, the Trump-Russia disinformation collusion hoax, all of it. Now we come to January 6th. The reality is we know that there were federal law enforcement agents in that field. We don't know how many. I think it's Mr. shameful. Ramos, if, if I may finish just answering. Well, let me this just, is, this is really I, I'm going to go ahead and interrupt you here because, because you're I saying know this, that there were, doesn't approve of this message. I know that there this, were federal agents. We should be able to talk about this. You're saying that there were federal this is, agents. This is important to talk about. You are saying there were federal agents in the crowd on, on, yes. on January 6th. Yep. There is no evidence that there were federal agents in the crowd on January so, 6th. So why before Congress, when pressed on what the number was, they didn't say there were none. They just couldn't so say how many there were. So you're saying that there's no, that you have not seen evi any evidence so that we've there seen were. Multiple, and so you we've seen multiple informants suggesting that there were. We know people were, we know people were FBI informants who were asking. Is there this. any evidence? May I just finish this and you can come back and question me? Well, let me clarify. I know it's very uncomfortable for you. I'm going to clarify my question I know question this is an uncomfortable issue for many people, but we have to do the truth here. I'm going to clarify my question because I want to make sure that you understand what I'm asking. I understand this. And I told you, I was where working three years the, ago. I'm where not there now. Where is the evidence? Yes. Where is the evidence that the government had a plot, so let's do this. an inside I, job? But no, 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 I'm going to tell you what an inside job is because I'm not going to. I'm not violence on January 6th. Where I'm not going to let you put words in my that? mouth. I'm going to put my words in my mouth. And I'm going to tell you what, what I mean by that. Where is the evidence that the government was involved Entrapment. in planning or executing okay. January 6th? Where so I'm going to give you I'm going to give you hard facts. And, and if I may, Abby, I know this is going to be a little uncomfortable, but we're going to we're, we're going to go through this and you can and you can you can push Just back on it. For the evidence. That. And you can push back on that. And let's do this fairly. Why did they suppress footage of now what's been released? 200 hours of footage of shooting rubber bullets into that crowd, shooting tear gas into that crowd. You didn't see that before. You saw what the response was to that. Uh, now you see footage coming out of actually rolling out the red carpet for Capitol Mr. Police allowing Mr. Ramaswamy, people in. Again, right through the front the door. vast majority I mean, of that, that footage. 
Now, many of you will jump to the conclusion that I'm a Jan 6 denier and that the feds were behind all of this and I agree with everything Vivek said. I'll just be totally honest with you. I, I have no idea. I know that we're seeing more and more information that's coming out, especially since Mike Johnson released more of the footage of uh, January 6th. There's way more to cause a little bit of caution unless you just want to be brainwashed by the mainstream media. And he brings up some of that stuff in that, in that clip. And so I think all of that is super, super relevant and super important to talk about. And it's important for us to not close the book on that conversation as this host did. Now, that's really what I want to talk about, because regardless of where you fall in terms of January 6th and whether the feds did it or whether uh, there was, you know, kind of an instigation on behalf of the Capitol Police that were there, you know, throwing tear gas at the crowd before they were even provoked or anything like that. I just I just don't know enough of what happened there to really be able to say. But I can only say this, that what you just saw on CNN is one of the most epic things perhaps you will ever see. And it is epic in this way. What you heard from that, that host, that moderator, is the sound of a worldview crumbling underneath the weight of a person who actually cares to think for themselves. Now, here on Indie Thinker, uh, that's great because that's what we're trying to achieve. I'm not going to try to say I, I, I don't have an echo chamber or that I'm, I'm still not doing the best I can to, to get outside that echo chamber. I'm just simply saying this that the mainstream media is definitely an echo chamber. And it's so refreshing to hear somebody like Vivek go into that echo chamber and absolutely demolish the damn thing. I, because I'm a proponent of truth, I care about resisting narratives in the mainstream. Not resisting for resisting's sake, but resisting for the sake of helping us think critically. Now, for those who have ever gone to college, I'll just say, but certainly for those who have gone into graduate degrees and PhD and all of that stuff, the at least the way it was and the way it's supposed to be is that your ideas are supposed to be rigorously tested and pushed against and pried against and, and be as much as they possibly can to see if they withstand scrutiny. We don't do that anymore in the mainstream media. And even if you disagree with everything Vivek said, you should cheer Vivek for this one reason. He's testing the mainstream narrative to see if it can withstand what Vivek is saying. Now, I happen to think that he's got a lot of merit to what he's saying. And that seems to be why this host is really deeply afraid. Because she doesn't want it uttered. The idea of misinformation and making sure that the news media is there to keep us from hearing things that we just can't we can't contain it. We can't, we, we can't entertain it. We can't think about it because if we do, then who knows what may happen. We may believe something that they don't want us to believe. Which is like, who cares? You don't get the right to dictate what we believe. That's not your job. Your job is to report and we decide. It's about time somebody started doing that. Suffice to say, I love Vivek for this very reason, is that he's pushing against the mainstream narrative every time he crops up, and I can't help but applaud him here on this one. And now, secondly, I want to go to another big story that kind of happened last week with Hunter Biden, because Hunter has refused to testify and refused to show up, and now he's probably going to be subpoenaed in order to do so, but it didn't stop him from talking. And when he did talk, here's what he had to say. Here's MAGA Republicans, including members of the House committees who are in a closed-door session right now, have impugned my character, invaded my privacy, attacked my wife, my children, 
my family, and my friends. They have ridiculed my struggle with addiction, they have belittled my recovery, and they have tried to dehumanize me, all to embarrass and damage my father, who has do devoted his entire public life to service. Now, I don't want to take long with this because some of this just speaks for itself. But there's just two things I want to mention here. And the first one is this. We hear from, from Hunter Biden what we hear a lot these days and what Christians need to build up a resistance to. And this is why I want to speak about this. And it's called emotional blackmail. You know, he points his finger at mega Republicans. You're making a mockery of my recovery and you're making a mockery of my father and you're attacking my kids and attacking my wife. And it's like, nah, bro, the guy who is unfaithful to his wife with prostitutes is actually the one that's attacking his wife. And the one that's making a mockery of your father is not mega Republicans. It's the guy with the crack pipe hanging out of his mouth. And it's time for you to take responsibility for that rather than to blame other people. And that makes way for the second thing here. As a Christian, I want to point out the fact that your emotional blackmail is not going to work on us. You can't just say, oh, well, you're a Christian. You're supposed to be nice about this thing. It's like there's some things that we're not supposed to be nice about. In fact, there is no 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. Uh, obviously, we need to be charitable as much as we possibly can be, but we're not here to try to people please you so that you think we're nice. We're here to try to change the world. Now, we want to do that as nicely as possible, but there's times where we cannot do that nicely. Suffice to say, that, that sows into the second thing here, is that if we really care about Hunter, if we want to be nice to Hunter, then the nicest thing we can do to Hunter is to hold him accountable for his actions and not let him blame other people for his actions. See, that is a great way to turn somebody who is a recovering drug addict into a sociopath. Personal responsibility is the way to make a recovering addict somebody who becomes a contributor to society. If he is not able to make that leap, he will continue to blame other people for his problems and then even potentially go back into his addiction. Now, I as a pastor have dealt with this on numerous occasions, whether it just be the textbook narcissist or it be the person who is dealing with addiction. If we really care about Hunter's addiction, if we really care about Hunter being held responsible for his actions, past and present, then in the future, we need this fishing expedition to see if Hunter needs to pay the consequences for any crime he may have committed. Now, a lot of people are saying this is just a fishing expedition. Well, I'm sorry. We went through a bunch of fishing expeditions during the Trump presidency. I think we can afford one fishing expedition right now with a potential impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden and um, this this subpoena for Hunter Biden, where we finally get to hear this dude testify under oath. It's important for us to know, and more importantly, if you really care about Hunter, and that's the thing at the end of the day, real compassion doesn't overlook this and just try to wash this under the rug or use emotional blackmail to try to say, oh, if you're loving, you won't want uh, vengeance here. It's not vengeance. It's justice, and justice must be served. I'll put it to you the way Thomas Aquinas said. He said, love is willing the good of the other. This is why we don't use pronouns. This is why we don't cut on an individual and let them fall under the delusion that, that they will be bettered by cutting off their genitalia. We don't let them do that because loving people is willing the good of the other. We want what is best for them. And what is best for Hunter here is that he pay for his crimes, every single one of them. And if he's got nothing to hide, then he should have no problem showing up and testifying. But chances are he's got more than you could ever imagine to hide. And that's why it's also important that we hear from him. Because we may find 
that what Trump has done pales in comparison to anything Joe Biden has done since he's been in office. All right, let's jump into our final segment, Bible study with Democrats. Oh, God of pronouns. By now, you've probably heard of the case of the poor woman, or at least we're expected to believe, that was not able to have an abortion in Texas because of the strict abortion laws there. And now she has to go somewhere else in order to take care of that inconvenience. Now, I I really want to try to be as kind and charitable as I possibly can through all of this. But at the front of this, I really just got to tell you guys something. Um, Not only that I believe abortion is murder, but also if you can have an abortion in another state and instead you choose to sue the state of Texas in order to earn the right to have an abortion in Texas when you can just go to another state, I can't help but believe that you desire to put yourself and your baby in the spotlight and then you make it fair game for all of us to talk about it. Now, again, I'm going to talk about this as charitably as, charitably as possible and as much of, as a Christian as I possibly can. Uh, which is which is a large task because there's a responsibility there. But I also want to do so in such a way that we understand what we're talking about here because the reality of abortion has lost us by and large because we have fallen for the my body, my choice rhetoric that we hear so often in the culture. So especially in a case like this, I think it's important for us to investigate that claim. Like, it, does my body, my choice, does the clump of cells thing hold up in light of what we're seeing in Texas? The one thing we do know is that the left is losing their mind. Even people on the right, like Ann Coulter, are saying we've gone from protecting babies to absolutely being moral monsters against mothers. Now, I can't help but believe that the people who are the real moral monsters are the ones who are charging women to kill their babies for them. Those are the real moral monsters, not conservatives who actually care about babies. And it is also the case here where this woman is seeking a medical exception because of what's going on with her um, in order to get this abortion, which, by the way, is possible in the state of Texas. The only way that you can have an abortion is with a medical exception. Now, she originally got that granted to her, and then it was denied by the Supreme Court there in Texas. So here's the real question at the end of the day. Does she qualify for a medical exception? And is the state of test, uh, Texas being draconian in their abortion laws? Before you answer that, let's dig into this simple, this simple, uh, important detail of this pregnancy. So the woman in question is Kate Cox. And Kate Cox is probably somewhere in the realm of 20 weeks pregnant now. So clearly into her second trimester. Kate wants to abort her baby because she figured out that she uh, that her baby has trisomy 18, which is a genetic disorder that will, ine- will inevitably leave her baby delivered with a not only a genetic defect but severely handicapped, um, probably with club hands, club feet, lowered ears, inability to speak, and all sorts of impairments. It's a truly it's a truly awful thing uh, to have trisomy 18. Now, chances are too that. Kate's baby will be delivered and could be delivered with a high degree of success. So some are arguing right now because she has trisomy 18, the baby's going to be dead anyway. So what does it matter if she aborts it now or not? And then it saves Kate the trouble of seeing her baby experience this difficulty. Well, the truth is, is that 
a baby with trisomy 18 not only can survive delivery, but can also grow to become an adult. Now, I think the longest person is, who has ever survived with trisomy 18 was about 20 years or so. Um, so obviously, the longevity of that individual is, is not going to be very long, and their quality of life will be diminished because of their disability. But the last time I checked, you don't get to murder somebody just simply because they're disabled. Now, again, I'm arguing from the position that a baby in the womb and a baby from conception is a baby and not a fetus or a clump of cells. Because we don't say clump of cells on board, fetus on board, we say baby on board. And by the way, this is implicit for Kate. Um, so just to kind of buttress this argument, Kate is not arguing that this is a clump of cells. She knows it's a baby in her womb. This is not even a question here. The question is, is whether or not this is something that is severely detrimental to the mother and severely detrimental to the baby in such a f fashion that you should murder the baby. So that's the real question. Should we, should we save Kate the trouble and the heartache of watching her child have to go through this and will Kate be somehow impaired in the future with her fertility if this pregnancy is allowed to go on? Now, that's exactly what Kate's lawyers argued. And that's exactly why the state of Texas denied her argument in the end, because they found with their medical experts that actually Kate is not in trouble at all for her future fertility and her life is not in jeopardy because she has a baby with trisomy 18. I think it's fair to say this. I think that that was not only a frivolous lawsuit, but I think the lawsuit is really more about this. Do, do we save the mother the pain and the heartache of having a disabled baby or having to watch their child suffer and die? And the answer to that is, no, you don't save them that heartache. Who has the right to do that? Every single child that comes into this world will die eventually. Now, hopefully by God's grace, your child will outlive you and you will not see them die. But death is guaranteed to us all, and a pain-free life is not guaranteed to any one of us. Why should Kate have the right to alleviate herself of the pain of having to deal with death when every single other person on the planet has to confront death in whatever state it comes? Now you may say to yourself, well, uh, that baby's going to die anyway, Reed. What, is it, what does it matter? Isn't this a bit of a semantic difference? Well, no, it's not. In fact, because a baby is a human being and deserves dignity, it has the right to come into this world and potentially survive. And it has the right not to have its legs ripped off in the womb and then disposed as garbage. It has the right to a funeral and a burial. And it's really the only humanitarian way to truly care for this child and to truly care for the mother. And there's one other thing to say about caring for the mother here. If you truly care about the mother, you will understand that abortion is not a victimless crime, not only for the baby, but also for the mother. Abortion and post-abortive care is necessary because abortion is a deeply traumatic thing to do. If you really truly understand this, as you should, you will understand that what Kate is doing is she is murdering her child because her child is going to be disabled. Now, I don't know if that will register, if Kate will have the appropriate mens rea to truly understand that. But just think if she does. She will be haunted day after day with the reality that she simply killed her baby because she didn't want a disabled child. Now, again, I don't know if that's going to register to her conscience, but this is where the law steps in. And this is where progressive Christians have to be quiet. They like to say you cannot legislate righteousness. And true enough, you can't. 
but it depends on what you mean too, because you, you can legislate morality. You can put laws into place that protect disabled children, even from people who don't have the appropriate mens rea to understand what they're doing, but that would hurt a child just simply because it's disabled. At the end of the day, the reality is just simply this. The Texas law worked, and that's why we as conservatives should celebrate. We shouldn't fall for the emotional blackmail of those like Ann Coulter who want to try to shame conservatives for now not allowing this mother to have an abortion. The truth is, is that Texas heard this case. They ruled correctly. This woman will not be in any way uh, affected long term by delivering this baby in terms of her fertility. And this baby does have a chance of surviving. So it has the right to live. It has the right to be delivered and to to at least fight for, for whatever breath that it can take until the moment that we have to say goodbye to it. And I truly say we, because again, this, this is a win for the conservative movement and a win for Texas, because whenever we as a society value human life, it is a good thing for all of us because it is undeniably and inarguably a bad thing for us to devalue human life. The more we do that, the more our society goes down the toilet. And again, I go back to this idea that this is a win. And this is why we should be celebrating right now. We shouldn't have to necessarily be on the defensive on this. This is an opportunity for us as conservatives to realize that the culture war matters. And when we fight them, babies are saved. And especially the, the most innocent and the, and the most vulnerable among us which I believe there's somebody that said one time, Gandhi perhaps, that you can judge a society by how it treats its most vulnerable. It's interesting to me that the left is always talking about humanitarianism and social justice, but then they want to, they want to eliminate life in the womb, which is clearly the people that they should be concerned about if you really care about humanitarianism. At the end of the day, this is a win. It's a culture win and it's something we should rejoice and it should be a reminder to all of us that no, you can't legislate righteousness, but you can legislate morality and you can create a world that is better for all of our kids to live in past, present, and future. And because this is the portion of the show called Bible Study with Democrats, I'll just say this. Progressives love to twist and contort scripture in order to try to prove their priors. I'll just say this. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the bread of life. If we actually care about scripture and we really care about Jesus, then it's time we started standing up for life. It will never cease to amaze me that progressive Christians want to stand up for the welfare system and they want to stand up for immigration, but they will say nothing about transgenderism and the butchering of children. And they will say nothing about the butchering of babies in the womb. And by the way, in case you haven't noticed, many of them are being butchered to the tune of about 800,000 to a million each and every year. But because Texas is doing what they're doing, there's good news. In the year 2020, there were around 50,000 babies that were aborted in the state of Texas. Do you know how many have been aborted in 2023 post row? 34. Now it's not zero, but it's certainly better than it was. And it's a reminder to all of us that we cannot afford to sit on the sidelines in the culture war, especially when life depends upon it. And if you take a stand and if you do what is right, 
regardless of how many attacks people will throw against you for being a Christian nationalist or trying to confuse your Christianity with your politics. At the end of the day, if the fruit of your labor speaks for itself, then let God do the sorting in the end and you take a stand. That's all the time we have for today. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe and go with God.